0: Welcome to The Flywheel. Welcome back to the podcast for the first time in a little while. Today's guest is Jason Jacobs, the founder of My Climate Journey, or as we'll say often in the show, MCJ. MCJ is an organization that is taking a unique approach to tackling climate change. Before MCJ, Jason started and sold a popular run tracking app called RunKeeper. In this conversation, we talk about the climate problem at large, why he's so optimistic, how MCJ works and all of its different components and how each of you can get involved. I was super excited to have Jason on the show and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jason, thanks for coming on to the Flywheel podcast.
1: Thanks, Jake, I'm excited to be
0: here. It's been awesome watching you and your journey through MCJ the last couple of years. I've been a fan of the podcast, I think from pretty much from the very beginning. So be really cool to see how it's growing, how the community's grown. Sounds like you have a lot going on, so I'd love to just break it down, talk about the different components of what the MCJ universe looks like and how they all fit together. But before we get into MCJ, I would love to go back to the beginning before MCJ. You were the CEO of an of a running tracking app that sold. Love to just go back to then and and talk through the personal journey of being a CEO of a company, suddenly like working for a company that acquired you and how you started thinking about the next steps in your career and what you wanted to do next.
1: Yeah. So I was the founder and CEO of Runkeeper. We were one of the first apps in the app store back in 2008. And that was, I guess, an eight or nine year journey. We raised several rounds of institutional financing. As a first time founder, I made a bunch of mistakes, had somewhat of a bumpy ride, but ultimately learned a lot and built a product that was used by a lot of people and a community that was wrapped around the product that was pretty passionate and a great team. And we were acquired by Asics, the big global sneaker company based in Japan. And I ran digital at Asics for a couple of years, and uh, that was a great experience. Learned a lot there as well. and, And also just pretty proud of how the Integration went, and how succession went, and by the time I left, there really wasn't a lot for me to do because the team was essentially the consumer IT group for this big sneaker company, and and my COO from before the acquisition was the head of that team, and I didn't have a role, which was by design. So I slipped out the back door, took some time off, rested, recovered, and. It kind of hit me just how much luck and privilege and timing went into the outcome that we had. And I had what I would almost describe as survivor guilt and wanted to make my next chapter about purpose. And that's what kind of led me with some twists and turns in between to to what I'm doing now.
0: Awesome. And I think there was before MCJ, there was another like a climate oriented startup you started and then shut down. Is that correct? So is that something you you like to talk about or can describe what the thought was there? And, and...
1: Oh, I'll talk about anything. Yeah, that was called Two Way Labs. It wasn't climate-focused. It I had looked at climate and it certainly felt like an important problem, but it wasn't obvious to me how my skills were transferable. And it wasn't obvious to me that it was going to be an area that would give me energy or that I'd be particularly good at doing stuff in, especially given how long it takes to bring about any real change. It takes like sustained focus over a long period of time. And I, I just wasn't sure I had an Emmy with climate. So I talked myself into doing something that wasn't climate and got the band from Runkeeper back together, got uh, a few VCs uh, to, I mean, it wasn't really a company. It was like an expedition with a bank account. We we had a, an emerging media format. We were going to apply to different verticals and build like a tech-enabled content portfolio. And as I was going through the motions to get that going, the IPCC report came out, the one and a half degree report, and the symptoms were becoming more visible and obvious. The scientific community was foaming at the mouth. No one was listening. We we're moving too slow. Trump was taking steps to withdraw from Paris. So I was just getting kind of pulled more and more into climate and and ultimately just realized it's where I needed to be. So in late 2018, we had just raised a little bit of money to get going. I didn't even have a deck or uh, a even a, a clear vision. It was almost, I mean, it was expedition with a bank account, as I described. And I still had almost all the capital, more than 90% of it in the bank. Just give that back to investors, came back in the climate with a vengeance, with all the same concerns about where I would fit, but a lot more determined to figure it out. And this time, instead of looking for a company to start or something to do, I said, I'm just going to put me aside and I'll figure out where I fit later. I'm just going to start learning. So that's where I started in late 2018. And then it's been a very Organic process over the last few years, and un- unscripted as well.
0: Yeah, that's that's definitely something I want to dig into a little bit. You I, I definitely started this off as an open-ended exploration. Started publishing podcast episodes where you basically interview people who are working in some capacity to address these issues. Do you now that it's been about two and a half years or so? Do you still see it that way as an open-ended exploration, or do you think there's at this point in your mind more of a clear vision or outcome that you're working towards?
1: Well, it's more like a life's work kind of thing. Work kind of thing. I mean, the outcome is to have the biggest impact on climate change that we can and to build a bigger and bigger tribe of people who feel the same and then provide picks and shovels to help each person on their own climate journey and to help collectively for us to swing as big a bat as we can to help address the problem and accelerate the transition. There's three legs of our stool. There's media, there's uh, there's a podcast and a newsletter, there's a a big member community that pay, that pays dues, and there's uh, and there's a fund um, that invests in climate tech startups. We're not a venture capital firm. We're not a media company. And we're not a member community. We're this like weird hybrid of things. And directionally, we might have other buckets as we grow. We're not any of those things. We're MCJ, like we're this tribe of people that's trying to help address climate change. And so I think the mix of things that we actually do is going to constantly evolve over time, but collectively. We're building a tribe of people that are working together to accelerate the transition to a more sustainable and equitable world.
0: Let's go back to the beginning of MCJ. You started with a newsletter and a podcast. Like, it didn't start with this tribe of people. It started as as you. So I would love if you could just walk us through the timeline and how these evolutions happened over the past couple of years.
1: Yeah. First, I just started reading. And when I read things that sounded smart about climate, I would just, for example, reach out to the author. And ask them if they'd be willing to chat with me. And, or if they mentioned a company that sounded interesting or an organization that was doing interesting work, or they quoted a research paper, I would look who the authors were, things like that. And I was just reaching out to everybody. And and then I would just say, hey, like I, you know, what I just told you, I had this startup, sold it, want to make my next chapter about purpose. Can't imagine a more purposeful area than climate change. But I'm early in trying to figure out one, I'm trying to learn, and two, I'm trying to figure out how I can help. Would you be willing to chat with me? So I would talk to those people and they would say, keep me posted on your progress. So once a month, I started sending an email just saying, hey, like in this month, here's the ground I covered. Here's some of the things I learned. Here's some of the things that were surprising. Here's some of the new questions I have. And here's some of the areas I want to tackle next. And I would get a wave of new introductions every time I sent out one of these newsletters. And then with their opt-in, they would get added to the distribution list. And then after a few months of that, People increasingly from my old technology industry life would reach out and say, hey, I heard about what you're doing. I feel similarly. Where should I start? What should I read? Who should I talk to? And I said, whoa, I I don't know, but I'm having all these great discussions every day. I wish you could be a fly on the wall to learn from the people I'm learning from. So that was the origin of the podcast was essentially just to record the discussions I was already having and start building a knowledge repository for those that came after me. So now I'm more than 200 episodes in, and as I got down that path, my inbox started filling up with people grateful for the show. And those people were binging on the show and using it as an invaluable learning tool to get them up to speed. They were pretty strategic and interesting people who like swing a big bat in whatever they do. And... They were pretty diverse they came from different industries different geographies different skill sets and and in many cases they didn't know each other so i knew of all these people but they didn't know each other so we set up a slack community just to stick them all in the same digital room and now that community has taken on a life of its own where there's um, more than uh, a thousand members and you have to apply and there's a dues model and and there's a lot of good things that have come out of there there's uh channels By topic area where people congregate with diverse skill sets and backgrounds, but talk about topics, whether it's regenerative ag or carbon removal or uh, grid efficiency or things like that, policy, et cetera. Uh, There's a number of founding teams that met in there that now have ongoing entities, both startups and nonprofits. There's a bunch of open source projects that got hatched in there that are now getting actively supported and worked on. There's a bunch of hiring that's gotten done, a bunch of companies have raised money, a bunch of funds have gotten LPs in there. A bunch of events and programming that have been popping up, stuff that we put on for members and stuff that members put on for each other. And yeah, initially the investing for me was just small angel checks, almost like grad school tuition. I said, well, startups is where my heart is. I know innovation has a role to play. I don't know much about these domains. So if I found a great team that was focused in a big area for decarbonization that had some smart institutional money, either in there or coming in alongside, I would just write a little check. And I, I again, I gave myself permission where I set aside a, a pool of money that I viewed as part of learning versus putting pressure on it to have financial returns. I did probably 15 of those checks. Some of those companies started raising follow-on. I started pulling together some SPVs or special purpose vehicles to take bigger allocations in subsequent rounds. And then that was around the time that AngelList was starting to come out with a rolling fund structure. So we ended up launching one of the first rolling funds on AngelList and we have a pool of today, it's about 10 million per year or two and a half million per quarter. We've got about 160 individual LPs that come from a wide range of backgrounds, but a lot of horsepower in there, including a bunch of operating executives for some of the biggest companies in the world, a couple dozen fund managers investing personally that come out of some of the top venture capital and private equity firms, a bunch of exited founders, a bunch of sitting CEOs, a bunch of the head of the largest climate reinsurance company, the former CEO of one of the big climate NGOs, people like that and and then we've also backed I think it's 28 or 29 companies since we launched the fund 8 months ago and and we're just getting warmed up. So yeah, content community capital flywheel, that's the name of the show.
0: Yeah, I remember when we when we first met up or first chatted about this back I think in January in a while. You had you already had a flywheel graphic ready to go. You, you shared it with me and I'll definitely include it in-, in the article. But yeah, I'd love to go through each of these pieces in a little bit more depth and just talk about how they feed the other pieces. On the podcast, I- I'm really curious to know how your feeling of being an expert or not being an expert and like your comfort in having conversations around some of these topics has evolved over the past couple of years. I know many of your guests are like world-leading experts in s- some very specific like deeply focused area related to climate. And in a lot of conversations you'll caveat this very openly and say, I'm a total noob. I don't really know what I'm talking about and just want to learn. Like has that has that feeling changed over the years? You feel like you're getting more well versed? And now of course people are probably reaching out to you as a leader and sort of an expert.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm only two or three years in and still very much a beginner. And and given that I really have been trying to slowly unpack the problem from a holistic angle. I'm so, and and it touches everything. I'm so broad and the areas that MCJ covers are so broad that there's no way I'll ever be an expert in any one of these areas. But that is our differentiator is we, I think given that my entire career has been in startups and that's what I know and that's What I love, I I think, I don't have any misconceptions that innovation is going to come in with a cape and save us. But I do think there's an important role for innovation to play. I also think there's important roles for a lot of other things to play and that there's no one thing that's going to be a silver bullet. And so I think where we tend to focus is at the intersection of innovation and everything else that's necessary to facilitate the clean energy or the broader you know, transition of our global economy to decarbonized and more sustainable. Um, and, and so yeah. very much a learner covering tons of topics that I know very little or nothing about. And I don't think I'll ever lose that given how broad it is. That being said- as we do more of them, I can start to say, critics of the thing you're doing say this. How do you respond to them? I'm not saying that. I'm just a newcomer trying to learn, but that's what they say, and I'm just trying to get to the truth. What do you say to them? Or, or hey, what you're saying actually sounds a lot like this discussion I had over here with this person doing something different in an adjacent area. Like, are, are there parallels? Is that a good comp for what you're trying to do? So I think there's more kind of anecdotal learnings I can start incorporating, but still very much coming at it from a
0: uh, beginner mind. And so, how have you seen the community and the investing side either themselves improve as a result of the podcast, or vice versa, improve the podcast?
1: All kinds of ways. We get stories almost every day, just from within that. When I say the community, it's the member community, it's the guests from the show, it's the audience, it's the fund LPs, it's the portfolio founders, it's random climate people doing it. It's community in the broader sense versus just like the dues-paying members. But we'll get a story of hey, like you I, I had climate on my mind. I didn't know where to start. And your show has helped me realize that like, I don't need to wait till I'm an expert. Like, There's a role for everyone to play. And since I started listening to your show, I've listened to 30 episodes and I've done this and I've done that. And, and actually just an update, I just ended up taking a job at a climate focus company. So stories like that, stories like, Hey, I listened to this guest on the show and fell in love with what that company was doing and reached out to them. And they just hired me stories about co-founders meeting within the community stories about I'll have a guest on the show and maybe they work at a big company and then we'll invest in a startup. And that startup is trying to do business with that big company and will facilitate an introduction and it'll make sense for everybody. And then a business relationship will form through our introduction. What are other examples? We've had guests come on the show and then we've invested in their companies because after spending an hour with the founder and doing a deep dive, fall in love with the vision, have a great rapport with them, someone we want to be in business with, you start a series of subsequent discussions and ultimately invest. I mean, those are just a few examples, but but we'll bring a guest on that's like the head of an NGO and then we'll Either have a startup that's within the member community or one that we've invested in who maybe is doing something in that area, but wants to talk to the people at that NGO who who are doing the research in that area that that startup is focused on, we can facilitate that connection. We've had guests come on the show and then they said, hey, I came on the show and then th- the next week, the climate policy person for this elected official reached out after listening to the episode and we just had an amazing lunch. So stories like that, it's not a huge audience. We'll never be like Joe Rogan or something, but it's a very strategic audience and they're very engaged. And so we punch above our weight class in terms of being able to facilitate mutually beneficial connections because it is just so Mm -hmm. engaged, so strategic and so targeted.
0: You mentioned earlier the, I guess, overarching mission, if you want to use that term, is just to have the biggest impact possible. Do you have one or two specific ways in which you measure, might be the wrong word, but measure or like estimate the type of the, the magnitude of impact that the collective MCJ world is having today and can have in the future? Not when it comes to like gigatons of carbon, but for example, those anecdotal stories tell
1: us that we're having impacts. That's not something that we measure, but the fact that those stories come in every single week and almost every day. I mean, that's good anecdotal evidence that we're uh, doing good for addressing the problem. We've also, we're now deploying $10 million per year in climate-focused companies and a bunch of our LPs had not invested in anything climate-focused before they became LPs in our fund. And then several of those have said, hey, your fund was the first thing I did that was climate related but since then I've done this philanthropic thing and I co-founded a company doing this and I joined the board of that company and so it becomes like a gateway drug if you will to to doing more in climate and then same thing with like portfolio founders one founder will have a question about non-dilutive financing sources and how to go about grants and that process and reporting and tax consequences and things like that and there'll be another founder in the portfolio that has you know done that for the last 5 years and will make that connection or they are selling to similar customer bases and we'll make that connection. Or one of our LPs got hired as a senior executive for a portfolio company through our introduction. It's, it's mostly example-based today. Directionally, we'd like to actually look at things in the aggregate from a reporting standpoint as well. We are we are there, we're doing some reporting and tracking when it comes to diversity, but we've not, for example, done any reporting and tracking when it comes to like carbon abatement. And that's a, that's a hard thing for early stage companies, but we think that potentially there's an opportunity for us to take a leadership role in helping define that type of thing as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. On the investing side, I, I was rereading the, you put out a Medium poster announcing the fund in October last year or something like that. And you said something interesting in there about how when you first started off with the MCJ journey, you were skeptical of the role startups might have in this whole thing. And that over the past couple of years, you've become more convinced that startups do have a role to play, which I'm sure was great for you as a startup person in general, but, but we'd love to hear what changed your mind about that topic
1: there's some pretty loud voices of veterans that have been working in climate for a long time. And so when you first come in and you start learning about climate, these people, their messages beat you over the head with this very like decisive and convincing and it's gotta be this way. And and I've just found as I've learned for myself, there's, for one thing, you'll learn that those messages oftentimes contradict each other from different experts who, or quote unquote experts who disagree with each other. So you have to form your own mm-hmm. worldview. But the other thing is that sometimes conventional wisdom like for better or for worse, or for right or for wrong, I just don't necessarily agree with. As I get myself up to speed, and and so one thing that you know that that was beaten over my head when I came in was that deployment's the only thing that matters. We only have ten years, and like early stage innovation, there's just no place for it, and you can't call it a climate thing. And like, I just fundamentally disagree. It's not that I don't think that. We're under time pressure. It's not that I don't think that we should be doing all the things that can have the biggest impact in the short term, but I think that one, there's things we can do on the innovation side that can have a big impact in the short term. And two, we should be doing things that are just the right long-term things to do too. Like, it's not if we get to 10 years, the world blows up and it's game over. It's more like a slider where it's like, you know, things will get worse and with that comes consequences, but it's just more, it's more fluid than that. And I think everything matters. Activism matters. Education matters. Policy matters. Our democracy matters. Capital sources matter. The role of big companies matters. The role of employees within those big companies matters. The role of philanthropy and it, 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 it all matters. And so take big oil. There's people that say, we need to divest. And there's other people that say, actually, we need to have shareholder activism and exert pressure from the inside. And so if we divest, then we lose the ability to have any control, right? And they can both be right. Like we can divest and we can, and and put pressure and we can have control from the inside and put pressure. And a lot of these, it's made out to be either, or when the answer should be both. And yeah. So that, that is an evolution of my perspective where when I came in first, I thought, is it too late? Are we screwed? And then it was like, oh, I have an old coastal in my ear saying it's not too late, but there's these big moonshot bets and give me Twelve entrepreneurs or fourteen entrepreneurs, and I'll solve climate change, and the rest is noise. And so, for a little while, it was like carbon tax, nuclear, long duration storage. There's like a handful of things, and nothing else matters. Now, I think of it much more like a like an integrated rainforest, where it all matters. It's all interdependent, and any progress we make in one thing helps soften the landscape for the other things to change too. I'm
0: like for sure not well equipped to have like deep conversations about climate in any way whatsoever, but having read a little, the little that I have read and, and reading things like the drawdown report, for example, you're, I think one thing I was really struck by is how that breaks down all of the, like a hundred top contributors to the problem. And like, even the biggest one is single digit percentage points, right? Not No one thing, if you solve it is going to solve the whole problem. And so you really do need hundreds of thousands of people or just a huge array of things happening all at once working towards very different disparate goals that kind of all connect on some level.
1: Yeah, and when people people say moving atoms is the only thing that matters, there's no role for digital to play, like that's just silly. Like like there's digital things that can help facilitate moving more atoms, for example. It's like it's so sometimes you know, people just have these kind of rigid views of the world and it does take some new blood and beginner mind coming in to just think different. But other times that deep institutional knowledge is invaluable and without it can lead that newcomer to make, you know, unforced errors, like avoidable mistakes that that they wouldn't have made if they had some of that history mm-hmm. and scar tissue institutional knowledge. So you need both and they need to play nice together, but it, it's a challenge to figure out which are the elements of the institutional knowledge, for example, that should be foundational and which are the ones that are actually harmful and more like PTSD. And then which are the elements of the beginner's mind that are like the unbridled optimism we need to bring about progress. And then which are the ones that are just gonna bring about like beginner mistakes. And that's a constant tension and struggle, but the answer is somewhere in between and it's not all this way or or all that way like many people try to cast it.
0: Before we move on from NCJ, just one, one last question there. You've got this three-legged stool. These three pieces all kind of feed each other in some in, in various ways. How do you think about prioritizing among the three? Where do you spend your most time? Or do you think one of them has more leverage than the others? To, if you pushed on it harder, it would spin the whole thing faster? Or is it pretty evenly distributed amongst the three?
1: Yeah, I think it's important that they grow in equilibrium. That doesn't mean at any given time that's exactly how we're... Resource, but directionally, for example, without the content and community, I don't think we should have a fund, and without the fund, I don't think we could be doing everything we're doing in content and community because the fee from the fund, I mean, it'll take time for that fee to ramp up the way it's structured. But so we're still on a shoestring. But directionally, as that as the fund matures, that fee is actually much bigger than the member dues, for example, at least today. And so, if we actually want to be able to invest in the content and community, We need the fund, right? And then the fund Mm -hmm. is where, at least today, where the upside comes from. We don't think we're going to build like a a big venture-backed media company or something. We don't think that would be the right answer if we're optimizing for impact with, with the community and with the pod. So, yeah, it's a delicate balance, but we're trying to build a new kind of thing where it is a flywheel where they feed each other. And there are some kind of tricky areas to Tap dance through as it relates to incentives and conflict of interest and things like that. And we're just going to learn as we go and be as transparent as possible along the way. And if we screw up, we'll try to own it and be transparent about that too. But we're really excited to build a new kind of hopefully enduring multi asset class firm that also has a portfolio of different content offerings and a big platform that it, that brings people together and fosters connections, both digitally and in person, like that's where we want to go. But I, I would say today it's very much like content, MVP, fun MVP, community, MVP, and so there's like an expansion path for each, but also they should expand in a way where they continue to feed each other with a virtuous cycle.
0: Really cool vision. Personally, I'm a huge fan of, of all the work that you guys are doing. Uh, like I said, having been in and around it for about for a year or so now. I'd love to move on and just talk a little bit more about just kind of climate in general. And this is really me just to learn from you who has spent two and a half years learning from experts all over the world and, and and from just thousands of people in your community. So some of these questions might be pretty dumb, but we'll go with it. I ask dumb questions every day. No, no such thing as a dumb question. Awesome. So I guess where I'll start with is just if someone landed on earth today from a different planet and asked you to describe what the current state of climate change was and how would you describe what we're facing and what the current outlook is?
1: I can tell you to the best of my understanding, but I am not an expert. So I'll just, I'll put that disclaimer, uh, before I answer this question, but from what I can gather, the carbon that we put up in the atmosphere stays up there for a long time that will outlive us. I mean, essentially from our standpoint as humans on Earth today, but you can think of it as forever. And it traps the heat in, and as it traps the heat in, it has a range of consequences as it relates to water and droughts, as it relates to extreme weather events and patterns, as it relates to the ocean and acidification, as it relates to wildfires, as it relates to hurricanes, as it relates to flooding and sea level rise. Moving from a world of relative stability for a long time to because of the industrial revolution to a world that is a lot more volatile. And much of that is caused from humans and all the carbon that we're putting up in the atmosphere. Essentially, our global economy, so much good has come from the industrial revolution, but but one bad thing, GHGs. And that really isn't factored in today. There's no price on that Externalities. So essentially, if you think of it as trash, we can just dump as much trash as we want up in the atmosphere and there's no repercussions of that. So directionally, we need to move to a, a world where we aren't doing that and we're living more in equilibrium with the planet and the atmosphere that we rely on to support us and other life forms. And it's complicated because uh, a lot of that pollution and GHGs has come from the developed world, from the developed West. And and now you have the developing economies that are just starting to come into their own and have some of the things like basic electricity that we have had for a long time. So it would be hypocritical of the people in the West to say, we benefited from it, but now you you can't. So there's some equity issues, but at the same time, like in the aggregate, we need to fix our stuff. So it's, a hard systems problem filled with interdependencies and then any action we do take has some might have some positive consequences but also has some negative unintended consequences in other parts of the system and at the same time the biggest danger is lack of action which has been much of the mode that we've been in over the last several decades Um, even though we've known about this problem. We've been moving way too slowly to fix it and getting to a place now where where the stakes are higher because even if we move aggressively to fix it, there, there's still gonna be consequences over the next several decades based on things we've already done, let alone the things that we go and do.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Definitely strikes me that there's just a major incentives problem when we have a short term election cycle, just fundamentally. If the problem, as we get closer to it, it becomes more and more of a short-term problem. But historically, it's been a longer, like kind of farther out problem. And if you're running for re-election right now, and what, where are you incentivized as a leader, at least in the political system, to basically take on short-term pain on behalf of your entire population for long-term gain?
1: Oh, and not only that, there's jockeying because each country is like, well, I'll do it. But if I do it, I'm going to be at a disadvantage to that other country. So I'm not going to do it unless they do it too, because if they don't do it, then I can't do it. Otherwise I'm going to be left behind. And at at a certain point, a a switch flips and we go from not doing it as being the most economical path and the path that puts an economy in the strongest position to a world where it's the opposite, where it's if clean is the future, then clean Mm -hmm. means jobs, clean means R&D, clean means innovation, clean means global leadership. And and it it seems inevitable that's where we're going. I think the question is just like, when does that switch flip where where leaning into clean is viewed as offense and not defense?
0: Right. So I guess rather than relying on some kind of like mythical cross-country collaboration and partnership, you're saying there's just going to be a financial-based incentive shift that occurs that sort of causes everyone to start behaving the right way. It just might take a long time to get there.
1: Ultimately, we, we have to get there and things will just continue to get worse. And you can say, but we never will. It's like, well, at a certain point, I don't want to, things are going to keep getting worse. And at a certain point, it, it'll be indisputable. And in certain parts of the world, it's certainly indisputable now. But there's also things that we can do to accelerate that. And that's where much of the debate is, not necessarily that we need to accelerate it, but, but how and at what price and, and the vested interest. If there's going to be change, with change comes opportunities for new winners and new losers. And so if I'm an old winner, then I don't want things to change. And and that's where some of the incentive problems come in. But at the same time, the old winners are the ones with the biggest might and reach that can help facilitate the change. And so that's where you get the debates about some people say, it doesn't matter how much big oil can help us. like We need to burn them to the ground because they're never going to shoot straight with us and they're going to hold on I- I- until they can't anymore. So we need to force their hands. And then there's others that say, but they're taking steps and some are further along than others. But like They have the resources, they have the expertise, like we need their help. Why are we trying to do it alone? Like we're just shooting ourselves in the foot. And I think there's some elements of merit to to each of those perspectives. And so, so many other things The truth is, is, at least to me, seems like it's somewhere in the middle.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's probably true. I would love to ask you about optimism. In the face of this thing, you definitely take a very optimistic kind of tone when you talk about it. Um, I think part of that's just who you are, but also maybe just not being optimistic is is so unproductive that like your goal is to have an impact that, that then you're ever, like forced into being optimistic. But like how, I guess just starting off, like from maybe from one to 10, like how optimistic are you? I don't even really know the right way to phrase this question. People talk about averting the worst case. So maybe that's the, the right framing, but like how optimistic are you that we can, I don't know, make progress? Meaningful progress as a planet against this goal in a time frame that matters. I mean, and I'll
1: will... answer that, but I actually don't. I don't necessarily think it matters in the sense that if if there were no shot, like I'm not going to give up. I'm going to still get up every day, and I'm going to do everything I can, and I'm going to try to leave it on the field to to avert the crisis and minimize the collateral damage and the unnecessary suffering that might occur. And and if it's very achievable, like that doesn't mean we should get complacent or move slower because it's, oh, it's solved, and move on to the next thing. It's, if it's very achievable. It's still gonna take a lot of hard work, and we're at the front end of that journey, and so we should still be pushing as hard as we can. No matter how optimistic you are or you're not, like, the answer should still be to get up every day and do everything you can. Now, for the people that aren't in a position to do that because they're trying to figure out, like, how they're gonna feed their family today, that's understandable. But for people like me that aren't in that position, I feel like we have a duty to do everything we can for so that in the long game we leave the planet as habitable and viable and prosperous for as many people as possible as we can. And that's, you know, just a duty that I feel and, and a way that I'm gonna try to make my mark with the with the years that I have left. So is it gonna be hard? Yeah. Can we do it? Yeah. Is it gonna get ugly? Probably. But does that mean we don't even try? Of course not. So every day, I'm just going to get up and do the best I can. And however optimistic or pessimistic I feel, doesn't really matter because I just still get up and do everything I can every day. That, that's how I look at it.
0: I, I think that's great. I think you're right, though, for a lot of people who are maybe hoping or thinking about getting involved, or who are not, who, who are basically where you were before you started MCJ or diving in. I don't know if this is the sense that you get. The sense that I get from a lot of people is is there's, it's confusing, it's complicated, there's like shock and disbelief is like, can it really be this serious? Can it, is this really what's happening? Are we really heading in this direction? Even if you know about the science you know that it's a fact that this is happening, it's still hard to internalize what it means, at least for me for sure, personally, and also people I've talked to. And then furthermore, like the issue you mentioned at the beginning of having more of a business tech kind of skill set, not necessarily knowing exactly how you can have an impact. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of concern from an optimism standpoint, do you think just spending your days all day working on it has made that a moot question?
1: When I wasn't working on it, I I still knew it was there. And so I could try to block it out of my mind and pretend I didn't know about it and go back to life as normal. But I knew it was there. And it was causing a lot of friction and anxiety and self-doubt about my choices that I wasn't working on it. Now that I'm working on it, I'm way less anxious than I was when I wasn't working on it because I'm getting up every day, leaving it all in the field, Doing the best I can. So for me, it's energizing, it's intellectually stimulating, it, it feels incredibly purposeful and it's probably gonna be lucrative. It doesn't need to be. That's not why I'm doing it. But the I kinda think that if it tracks how it seems like it's gonna, I'm gonna make more money doing this than anything else I could have done. That's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it to help with the problem, but that's why I'm gonna be successful doing it, because I'm doing it to help with the problem. So they're just so aligned, like purpose and profit for me. And I feel like I've found a way that I can actually work towards making a living in something that I couldn't imagine a more important problem to solve and it's intellectually stimulating and it's challenging. And so my competitive streak kicks in. It's just such a good fit that like, I don't have time to be anxious. I don't have time to dwell because I'm actually doing stuff. And I don't know, maybe people are wired differently, but for me, you have two choices. If you know about it and you're not helping, you can either try to suppress knowing about it, which like, I can't fake it once I know it, I can't unknow it. Or you can pick up a shovel and start helping. And I chose the latter and haven't looked back, but everyone needs to figure out their own path.
0: The world that you're building is hopefully helping allow people to figure out how to pick up a shovel and where to dig and all of that stuff, which is probably more impact than you could just have on your own is sort of unlocking other people from having their own impact. And so I think it's it's a really amazing like downstream effect of this whole thing. If we have an LP who's like a C-level executive at a huge company, we have a bunch of those, right? Maybe this is the first thing they've
1: done for climate, but then... By seeing the companies we back, by seeing the evolution in the community, by seeing our progress, by seeing what we learn along the way, et cetera, then they, they might start with their wallet making a small investment in our fund. But the next thing you know, they're like, hey, like, maybe my company should be doing more. What can I do to get my company moving? And then let's say they go down that path. They're like, it's great that we're doing it, but like our whole competitive set is not – How do we help get the others on board too? Is there some kind of coalition we can build? So oftentimes like a small action and just taking that first step can then spiral and lead to a bunch of other things. And the most important thing is just start. And so in many ways, that's what MCJ is just for a lot of people. It's just that first step.
0: Amazing. Thank you for all your hard work. You are definitely inspiring thousands of people to take the first steps in their own climate journeys. Uh, Last question before we wrap up. So you now have over 200 episodes plus the community. If someone listening to this is hearing about MCJ f- for the first time, where do you suggest they should get started?
1: The biggest thing is that they shouldn't overthink it. They should just give themselves the permission to focus on the things that are intellectually interesting and come to them without friction. It's not like taking medicine. They shouldn't force it. They should just peruse the list of episodes, and they should just start with the one that they're most interested in hearing about. Uh And if the pod is working, they can keep listening to more episodes if they prefer to read a book or have discussions in person or do a side project or whatever it is, big things, small things, formal things, uh, more of a meandering process. Every person's journey is different. And I think the key is just for each person to figure out what's going to work for them and do that and give themselves permission to just follow that path, even if it's a path that is less obvious to everybody else.
0: Fantastic. I hope this podcast plus the article coming out shortly will drive at least a few people to check out MCJ and get started and hopefully in a small way have its own little impact that has unknowable consequences. Jason, it was such an honor that you agreed to come onto the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you and having you on. Uh, really excited to to keep track on how MCJ progresses and good luck with everything.
1: Thanks, Jake. It was awesome to be here and a big honor and a treat to be on the other side of the microphone for once.
0: That's it for this episode of The Flywheel. Thank you so much for listening. If you made it this far, I'd love to hear what you think about this episode and anything you'd like to hear more of in the future. You can find me on Twitter at at JakeSing underscore, which is J-A-K-E-S-I-N-G underscore.